Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. I'm Pastor Kristen Stone King. Our mission at Epworth is to live out God's love for all. We strengthen our faith as we worship, study, develop a creative, supportive community, and serve others. Together, we encourage each other, challenge each other, and welcome all people on their journey of faith. Jesus, oh Jesus, come and feel your love. Oh, come and sing the song with gladness as your hearts are filled with joy. Lift your hands as we surrender to his name. We are a reconciling congregation, meaning that persons of all sexual orientations and gender identities are welcomed to help transform our church and our world into the full expression of Christ's inclusive love. We are a sanctuary church advocating for the rights and dignity of immigrants, and we stand in solidarity with the movement for Black Lives. Come and feel your lamb with lambs. Jesus, oh Jesus, come and feel your lamb. Our podcast blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings along with a scripture reading and a message. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. And I know that it's the spirit of the Lord. There's a sweet expression on each face. And I know you know the presence of the Lord. Sweet Holy Spirit, sweet heavenly dove, stay right here with us, filling us with your love. And for these blessings, we lift our hearts and praise. Without a doubt, we know that we have been revived when we shall leave this place. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. And I know that it's the spirit of the Lord. There's a sweet expression on each face. And I know you feel the presence of the Lord. Sweet Holy Spirit, sweet heavenly dove, stay right here with us, filling us with your love. And for these blessings, we lift our hearts in praise. Without a doubt, we'll know that we have been revived when we shall leave this place. Thank you. And now we turn to the first of our scripture readings. 
The first is from Genesis, book 9, verses uh, 20 to 27, book of Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 to 27. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay there uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah woke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth, and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. Our second reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 9 to 12. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. Praise be to God. The next reading is from the New Testament, Romans 8, 18 through 25. And if you'd like to follow along, it's in your pew Bible on page 158, the New Testament. The title is Future Glory. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Thanks be to God. Till all the jails are empty and all the bellies fill, till no one hurts or steals or lies and no more blood is spilled. God has. Run- 
Till all the jails are empty And all the valleys filled Till no one hurts or steals or lies And no more blood is spilled God has work for us to do to longtime friends and in and around my travel schedule, volunteering my time for various United Methodist causes, maintaining my day job, and finding ways to stay connected to my partner and spouse, Glenn Eagleson. Uh, I'm a proud member, lay member, of Epworth United Methodist Church. Kristen is so brilliant at asking people to step in and preach. She, asked, she actually asked me about two months ago uh, when, it seemed ver- when August seemed very, very unreal. Oh, sure, I said. I'd, I'd love to preach. <laughs> and I have two months to prepare. Uh, but having said that, uh, I'm going to ask for you to pray for me this morning, or to put it in Northern California speak, send me good heart energy, because it's been a, a challenging week. Yesterday at uh, the a delegation meeting, uh, uh, my good friend Jeffrey Kwan, and a member of uh, Epworth also, Uh, let us know that uh, Myron Wingfield, a a longtime friend of mine, uh, had passed away due to COVID. Uh, And Myron, uh, who was two or three years younger than I I am, I always thought of him as my uh, sort of younger brother. Uh, he, uh, He had this sparkle to his eye. He was kind and compassionate. We, the small group of us, went to a small United Methodist school in southwestern Virginia uh, where there was no choice but to know each other well, particularly during the long winter months. Um, And so, uh, and then we went on to um, go to Emory University and Candler School of Theology together 
uh, with he and his wife. So um, I'm remembering Myron Wingfield today. He died a month ago, uh, but uh, I got the news yesterday. So I'm remembering Myron and all the good things that he brought to me. Uh, and on top of that, uh, uh, it's been uh, a challenging week. As you can see, we're using technology in the service, and uh, uh, we have a wonderful technology team, but I have usually found that technology is not my friend. <laughs> so in pulling this very modern sermon together, Glenn had to work really hard to get me here this morning. <laughs> I went through the cycles of inspiration and then despair and then inspiration and then early rising, but I'm here. And sometimes that's all that counts. So chief among the tasks that I'm supposed to accomplish in my message today is to announce that in just about a month, the Epworth community will start a seven-week journey together to discuss racism, racial justice, and what God is calling us to do as individuals and as a congregation in light of all that we've been reading, seeing, and learning about racial justice and each other for the past year. During each of the first six weeks, starting in mid-September, everyone is invited to engage in facilitated conversations and workshops that will be offered in person and online on Sunday afternoons following worship. We'll learn, we'll share, we'll move, and we'll engage in mindfulness exercises to keep us spiritually rooted as we tackle the subject of racism. And at the end of the first six weeks, there will be a final church-wide holy conferencing session where we will spend some time discerning what God would have us do in response to God's gracious call to be committed allies to one another and those in the world who are suffering oppression, racism, uh, and other kinds of discrimination. Now, though it's not exactly the same process, <clears throat> some of you will remember going through the process of becoming a reconciling congregation, either here at Wep Epworth or at another church. That process focuses on the exclusion of LGBTQ plus people and how to become a more welcoming and accepting church. Both the reconciling congregation process and the holy conferencing that we will go about uh, are aimed at, uh, uh, are based on a willingness to engage in courageous conversations to take risks, to share stories, and to make ourselves vulnerable. And especially in conversations about racial justice, to practice cultural humility. Our first, oh, there we go. 
cultural humility is grounded in important principles. And I know that many of you probably have learned principles of cultural humility in relationship to the work that you do in the world. Among the most important principles of practicing cultural humility is a commitment to lifelong learning and critical self-reflection. Recognizing and determining to undo power imbalances and holding ourselves and the institutions that we participate in, including our own congregation, accountable to harms that may have been done. Between now and the launch of the seven-week series in mid-September, we're asking everyone in, at Epworth to consider participating in as many, uh, to, to join us in preparation and prayer. And then when the seven-week series starts, to participate in as many church sessions as you are able. Courageous conversations about racism and racial justice are not easy, but they can be transformative, both individually and collectively. I think in the days and weeks ahead, you'll find more information about the uh, seven-week series on racism and racial justice uh, and specific information about how to participate in the different workshops. So please do join us for this very important journey into our communal life together. Okay, now that that part of uh, the message is done and my announcement is through, I wanna ask if you wouldn't mind standing up in heart and spirit and joining me in this song of preparation. And pray for me and us, because we're gonna do it a cappella. No music, except the music of our souls. So let me find a good pitch, because baritones, you know, we can't start it too low for the others. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of thy heart be acceptable in thy sight, O God. Now we're going to change it to ours, and this time we're, we're going to sing it twice more, and we're going to do it a little more lively, like it's not a dirge, <laughs> uh, but that we are in active preparation. And if you're if you can throw in harmony in there and maybe a little swaying as you go, well, all right then, we'll start having church. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God. One more time. May the words of our mouths, I'm hearing harmony, and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God. Thanks, you can be seated. If you've been around Epworth long enough, 
You'll know that I start off every sermon I preach, and thankfully it's not that often, with the same words. And they come from Paul Tillich in his book, The New Being. We only want to tell you something that we have heard and a little that we have seen that here and there in the world and now and then in ourselves there comes a new creation. A creation that is sometimes hidden but sometimes manifest and surely manifest in Jesus who is the Christ. But on this particular morning I want to add to that The caged bird sings, Maya Angelou says, with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. Oh, on my journey now, Mount Zion, on my journey now, Mount Zion, Well, I wouldn't trade nothing for my journey now, Mount Zion. One day, one day I was walking along. Well, the elements opened up and the love rained down. On my journey now, Mount Zion. On my journey now, Mount Zion. Well, I wouldn't trade nothing for my journey now, Mount Zion. Hopefully, if nothing else about this sermon touches your hearts, the words of these wise voices from the past will be enough to lift you up. Some of you here in this sanctuary or watching at home will remember that roughly six years ago, I uprooted myself, left my partner here, and moved to New York to be the global religions director for the Arcus Arcus Foundation. And for the three and a half years I was in that position, I had the great privilege of working with human rights defenders on four continents, Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America. It was exhilarating but exceedingly challenging as I learned to ally with, pray for, and in some cases cry over advocates for racial justice, for gender equality, and LGBTQ plus inclusion in Christian, Muslim, and Jewish communities all over the world. There are so many stories I could tell you about my travels during that period. But one of my fondest memories, and one that will always stick with me, is the finding out that all over Eastern and Western Africa, several generations of African leaders uh, and religious leaders who had dedicated their lives to supporting human rights had been influenced by the words, actions, and witness of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. It was miraculous as we sat over a meal 
or spent time in worship or worked through uh, workshops and panels. One after another of those leaders would say when I would ask them, how did you decide to go into this work? At, uh, in some cases, at great peril to their lives and livelihoods. The answer would come back, I heard Bishop Tutu speak, and I heard his call to be engaged in justice, racial justice, gender justice, LGBTQ plus justice, and human rights. Archbishop Tutu's words and that mo those moments of inspiration come back to me certainly today as I think back over the enormity of what has befallen us in this country over the past four years alone. The deepening of racial divisions, <clears throat> the revival of old racial stereotypes and tropes by our former president, the never-ending killings of unarmed black and brown men, women, and children, and the public reemergence of racial hate groups that are not so different from the ones that terrorized my grandparents and their grandparents. In speaking to his fellow South Africans and beyond them to the entire world about how to deal with racial justice, Tutu writes, there is no way forward but reconciliation. And true reconcili reconciliation requires truth-telling and a willingness to grapple with our shared histories. It also requires earnest repentance and a genuine effort to make amends through concrete action. Then, and only then, does forgiveness become possible. There is no way forward, Tutu writes, but through reconciliation. And of course, deeply embedded in this understanding of true reconciliation is the fragile hope that a few good people from many different backgrounds, faiths, races, and ethnicities will be led by a yearning that is grounded in our common but flawed sense of humanity and in a willingness to see that same sense of common flawed humanity in the face of others who we experience as different from ourselves. Though it's been 20 years since it first aired to great controversy, particularly here in Berkeley, I still find Lee Munwa's documentary film, The Color of Fear, to be inspirational, insightful, and instructive. And at the very least, a really great example of how not to do racial dialogues. Now there's not enough time to recount everything that happens in that film, 
But what you need to know for the purposes of today is that it involves an actual conversation between eight men, two African Americans, two Asian Americans, two Latinos, uh, and two white men. And they spend a day together talking about racial injustice and the way forward. The climax of the film uh, comes in a moment of anger and frustration among all of the eight men gathered there over the seeming reluctance of one white participant to accept that racism has had such an outsized impact on the lives and life choices of the men of color in the room. When that one white male participant is finally pressed to say why he doesn't believe that racism isn't the terribly destructive force that his co-participants are reporting and describing, he makes clear that to believe their testimony about race would disrupt everything that he believes about the world, the United States, and how people are with each other. I don't know what I would do, he says, if I really believed in my heart that the world operates in the way that you describe. Now, it is never quite clearly or directly said in the film, but I wish someone had said to him that the invitation of any courageous conversation about racism and racial justice is for those with relative privilege to give up their misconceptions and stereotypes and their defenses about how the world ought to work in order to enter into deeper relationship and more meaningful solidarity and active allyship with people of color. This shift from a perspective of privilege to seeing the world through the eyes of those, as Jesus would say, who hunger and thirst for justice is, what, is precisely what Jesus refers to as the camel passing through the eye of the needle. It can be done, but you cannot remain the same while you're passing through. To put this another way, the practice of cultural humility demands, requires, invites lifelong learning, critical reflection, recognition of, and a willingness to change power imbalances, and real accountability from the institutions that we participate in. We must learn to see each other more clearly, to put it very simply. 
At the risk of making myself vulnerable this morning, I can uh, testify personally that if you don't understand a little about how, how making my way through the world as a mahogany-hued, six-foot-four, African-American man is made far more difficult by racism, you will never really know me or see me. You will never understand my sigh of relief at making it into my mid-40s because st statistically, most black men die between the ages of 22 and 45. You won't get the nagging worries about random encounters with the wrong police person where being humiliated and disrespected are the best that I hope for. Then there's the insult of having to produce extra IDs to get into my own bank accounts, or the random checks at every airport around the world because I look suspicious. And then a little closer to home, there's the insulting phenomena of being a black man riding on BART in an enormously crowded train and no one except for another black person makes a decision to sit by you. If you cannot know a little about my journey and the journey of other people of color you will never understand how the indignities of racism shape our lives at fundamental levels. But you will also never see my black joy, my black pride, my black humor, my black love. In the words of Maya Angelou, you will never understand why the cage bird sings. He sings because he must. How strange, how challenging, how terrifying, how wonderful that those of us walking in the way of Jesus and attempting to bring social transformation are told by Jesus himself that to do this work, we must love strangers as ourselves, make ourselves vulnerable and take risk, by, and by God's grace, undergo a profound change of heart, earnestly repent of the harms that we have done, and become allies to God's liberating spirit as it moves in and through the world. You know, when I uh, teach Christian ethics to seminarians, I, because ethics is kind of dry, I attempt to persuade them that in my understanding, doing the right thing is not about personal salvation, 
It's not about personal development or even self-improvement. Instead, I use the Hebrew concept of tikkun olam, uh, which is the Jewish understanding of uh, the need to be engaged in the healing of the planet and of the world. Tikkun alam, the concept of tikkun alam invites us to consider all that we do in terms of faith, discipleship, doing the right thing from an understanding that we have been invited to join an enormous circle of beings that spans all time and to be engaged in the work of healing the planet, overcoming divisions, lifting up those who are oppressed by racism and other kinds of social injunction. The great work, I tell them, the great work is not learning by rote different principles of ethics. The great work is drawing on those principles, standing up and making a decision to be a repairer of the breach, a healer of the planet, a liberator of other people. In a similar but different fashion, two black women theologians and ethicists, the great Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon, who is now ancestral, and Dr. Emily Towns, who is very much alive, and just in case you're watching today or see this later, Dr. Towns, thank you for allowing me to borrow the title of your article to use for the title of this sermon. <laughs> Full credit to you. These two powerful, wise women have said that to extend the invitation to participate in this great work involves two powerful principles, particularly for people of color who might otherwise choose to take a pass in dealing with racism all the time. And their invitation to come into this work is embodied in this question. What is the work that your soul must have? What is the work that your soul must have? Emily Towns specifically answers this question by boldly and clearly saying that freedom is not just for oneself, but one's people and that doing the work our souls must have falls into two major categories. Doing the work of liberation, that is freeing ourselves and others from the bonds of racism, gender bias, and all other kinds of oppression. And the other part, doing the work of reconciliation, building solidarity with others, so that we may all engage in laying the foundations of what is yet to come. 
in becoming repairers of the breach and restorers of street life. This is what the Apostle Paul refers to as participating in advance in the glorious, in the freedom of the glorious children of God. Participating in advance in the freedom of the glorious children of God. Vulnerability, risk, compassion, healing, liberation, reconciliation. These are the signposts on the way to seeing the freedom of the glorious children of God. And when you see these things begin to happen, according to the gospel writer Mark, look up, for your deliverance is nigh. Learn to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say. No one will love you as you are. But I won't let them break me down because I know that there's a place for us. For all we are glorious. When the sharpest words want to cut me down.
all of creation waits with eager groaning for the marvelous freedom of the glorious children of God. And when these things begin to happen, look up, for your deliverance is nigh. Amen. What does the Lord require of you? 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 What does the Lord what does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord You've been listening to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Wherever you're located, we'd love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. Our online worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings on Facebook, YouTube, and on our website at epworthberkeley.org. Or you can fill out an online Connect card at epworthberkeley.org backslash connect. Have a great week. The way, the holy prophets went, I'll never turn back no more. Oh, da-da-da, da-da-da, Oh